welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Okay, friends. Welcome. My name's Micah. Glad you're here. If you've been following on social media, you know what's coming. If you don't, wow, um, this is going to be a real shocker. Um, I will say this by way of introduction. Uh, if you don't follow Awaken on social media and you did bring your children this morning, we are going to read a passage and study a passage that is PG-13 at best. Um, so I'll just, for, I'll just warn you, you can choose whether, how you want to interact that. You'll know when we're going to read the passage and you're welcome to grab a donut at Moochie's and make your way back or whatever. Um, but... That's coming in a little bit. Before we get there, let me just offer a couple of thoughts. On uh, Last week, I had off Dan and Paul uh, led, who, by the way, are like their first preview gathering just ended like moments ago. So we just, we're starting a new church, friends. This is exciting. Very exciting. Uh, so I'm anxiously looking forward to reading my updates and whatnot on my phone and talking to Dan and folks to see how it went. So um, but I had last week off, and so it gave me the opportunity to kind of think through a few things uh, related to the events in our, uh, our, our well, let's call it our city, and, um, but larger than that, broadly, our country. Uh, and so I want to just offer a few thoughts before we jump in on that. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, Paul, the apostle, is writing to a church in Philippi, and he says this to them. He, he peels back a little bit of the curtain, and we get a glimpse of the, the, the very nature and the heart of God, I think, in this passage. And so he writes, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The question of what to do or how to respond to uh, a verdict that was given uh, not too long ago about a black man being shot by a police officer. Um, and there's lots of questions about this or how one engages or how one responds. And I want to offer this one idea. The kingdom impulse will always look like Jesus. And what we learn from Philippians chapter 2 is that the kingdom impulse is to take whatever power, privilege, and authority one has been given and to divest oneself of it voluntarily for the sake of another. This is who Jesus is and this is what Jesus does. Jesus, who uh, does not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to use to his advantage, but voluntarily takes whatever power, position, and authority he has and divests himself of it for the sake of service and love of another. That's who Jesus is, that's what Jesus does, and that's what a kingdom impulse looks like in our lives. Any notion in our lives or action or attitude that is in opposition to that impulse is by definition anti-Christ and should be repented of and called for what it is. So I would encourage you, my brothers and sisters of faith and people who follow Jesus, if you're wondering, how does one respond? If you say yes to Jesus, the kingdom move will always look like a person who may have some sort of position, power, and authority, who sets it aside voluntarily to enter into solidarity with another wherever one finds them, whether it be in fear or in grieving or in mourning or in wondering about what way is up and what way is down. That is always what the kingdom response look, looks like. 
And I would encourage us to consider what that would look like for, for us as individuals and for us as a church. Can I offer just a couple of thoughts on maybe what that could look like? Um, first, I would say, maybe now is not the best time to double down on our faith and trust in the justice system or in law enforcement. Um, I, I've heard that a lot from folks, and I just want to say that that might not be the most helpful response, especially from a group of people who I'm speaking to a predominantly white church, in case you didn't look around uh, and recognize that, and especially to a group of people who come from a majority culture who, for whom and by whom these laws and systems were put in place to serve. A question you might ask is a person of color, what has been your experience of the justice system? Or what has been your experience of the law enforcement system? What might reform look like? What do you celebrate? What might you hope to reform? And what does the response of the church look like in the midst of that? These are questions that might be a little bit more helpful than doubling down on our faith and trust in the law enforcement and the justice systems. Um, Maybe a couple of potential possibilities. Uh, Enter into systems and um, organizations that seek to maybe... uh, bring the gap between school systems and funding, uh, if you know what I'm saying. Like maybe enter into a system where, or a a scenario where there is a a district that has a lower tax base and therefore receives less funding and therefore has less money to spend on quality teachers, which produces, do you see what I'm saying? That's a system issue that one could engage in to, to try to bring equity to. Some of you in the room have said, I'm going to commit myself as an educator to just commit to one classroom, 30 students at a time to try to make a difference. I commend you for that. We bless you and send you out in the name of Jesus to do that well. Maybe there's a way by which you would enter legal conversations about the systems in our culture and in our day. Uh, There's all kinds of ways that one could engage, and I just want to encourage you to think through, as a person who follows Jesus, I know this. It will always look like Jesus, and it will always look like the kingdom, which looks like one who has power and position and authority, who sets it down, gives it away voluntarily for the sake of another. That's what God looks like, that's what Jesus looks like, and that's what the church should look like. That's all I have to say about that. Dan was preaching last week, and I certainly wanted to say something, but um, I wanted Dan to lead and give him the opportunity to do so, because Dan's going to pastor a church someday, all on his own, without us and our support. So what a better opportunity than to just wade into the deep end of the pool without me jumping in with him, right? So I've been thinking about this for uh, the last week and and wanted to offer that. Regardless of what you do, uh, which, which, as Dan said last week, it can't be nothing, Because the word of God is breathed into the world and it always affects, it always provokes, it always encourages movement. So it can't be nothing, but whatever it is you do, I would encourage it to be through the grid of the kingdom response of Jesus in Philippians 2, which is to divest oneself of position, power, and authority for the sake of another in the name of love and in the name of Jesus. Amen, Brother Micah? Okay. You're going to think that this passage has nothing to do with what I just said, but I'm actually going to argue that it has everything to do with what I just said. So stand if you can. This is when you might want to excuse the small ones. Ezekiel chapter 23. This is a long one, so bear with me. And please do not leave before I finish this sermon because just give me a fair shake at this one, all right? Here we go. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. There were two women, daughters of the same mother. They became prostitutes in Egypt, engaging in prostitution from their youth. In that land, their breasts were fondled and their virgin bosoms caressed. 
The older was named Ohola and her sister Oholiba. They were mine and gave birth to sons and daughters. Ohola is Samaria. Oholiba is Jerusalem. Ohola engaged in prostitution while she was still mine, and she lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians, warriors clothed in blue, governors and commanders, all of them handsome young men and mounted horsemen. She gave herself as a prostitute to all the elite of the Assyrians and defiled herself with all the idols of everyone she lusted after. She did not give up the prostitution she began in Egypt when during her youth men slept with her, caressed her virgin bosom, and poured out their lust on her. Therefore I delivered her into the hands of her lovers, the Assyrians, for whom she lusted. They stripped her naked, took away her sons and daughters, killed her with the sword." She became a byword among women, and punishment was inflicted on her. Her sister, Oholiba, saw this, yet in her lust and prostitution, she was more depraved than her sister. She too lusted after the Assyrians, governors and commanders, warriors in full dress, mounted horsemen, all handsome young men. I saw that she too defiled herself. Both of them went the same way. But she carried her prostitution still further. She saw men portrayed on a wall, figures of Chaldeans portrayed in red with belts around their waists and flowing turbans on their heads. All of them looked like Babylonian chariot officers, natives of Chaldea. Those were choice folks in that day, evidently. Then the Babylonians came to her, to the bed of love, and in their lust they defiled her. After she had been defiled by them, she turned away from them in disgust. When she carried on her prostitution openly and exposed her naked body, I turned away from her in disgust, just as I turned away from her sister. Yet she became more and more promiscuous as she recalled the days of her youth when she was a prostitute in Egypt. There she lusted after her lovers, whose genitals were like that of donkeys and whose emission was like that of horses. So you longed for the lewdness of your youth. When in Egypt your bosom was caressed and your young breasts fondled. Therefore, O Haliba, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will stir up your lovers against you. Those you turned away from in disgust, and I will bring them against you from every side. The Babylonians and the Chaldeans, the men of Pekod, of Shoah and Koah, and all the Assyrians with them, handsome young men, all of them governors and commanders, chariot officers, men of high rank, all mounted on horses. They will come against you with weapons, chariots, and wagons, and with a throng of people they will take up positions against you on every side with large and small shields and with helmets. I will turn you over to them for punishment, and they will punish you according to their standards. Pray with me. Lord, have mercy on us. God, we gather this morning in your name as your church, and as the teacher, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be honoring and pleasing to you, that they would be uh, in concert with your spirit at work in our midst, and that you might offer us a way by which we could turn, could move towards you for the sake of love in the world. And all of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Welcome to Awaken and Lost in Translation. (laughs) So every summer, we take on passages in the text that are interesting, uh, hard to interpret, or just downright crazy town. This is all of the three. Uh, I refrain from making some joke about going to the DMV for emissions tests. Um, That's not what was being referenced in that passage. Uh, Gang, you you just can't make this up. People who say the Bible is boring are not reading the Bible, okay? Uh, Or, uh, wow. So, 
here's what I want to do this morning. In order to try to make some sense of this passage, I want to ask a few questions that will try to will walk us into kind of the depths of this. And this is technical. This is the deep end of the pool in some ways. I once had a pastor tell me, like, Micah, you, your sermons are like way above everybody's head. You need to like dial it down a little bit. And I said, well, I just think there's a lot of churches who are dialing it down and there's, they, there's lots of people who go to them. But here you all are. So <laughs> we're not going to dial it down. <laughs> um, but this is, we're going to ask some questions about this. And, and, and then I want to move towards you and me here and now, because I actually think that this has something to say for us, uh, despite how far this seems away from us here and you and me, uh, I think it's actually really, really close to home, and especially in light of um, my introduction. So I want to ask some questions, and then we're going to move towards that. Are you with me? First question is, what is the Bible? You read a passage like this. And it's important, if you're going to take on a series like this and read passages like this, that you begin with what I would argue is one of the most fundamental questions we can ask, which is, what is the nature of this book? Uh, and and this, the answer to this question is, man, there's a lot riding on it. You ask people that question, like, what is the Bible? And you get all sorts of answers. If you were paying attention to the little bumper video, which we'll play as the intro to this series, you see people say, like, it's, it's timeless, People will say, it's time-bound, it's barbaric, it's the word of God, it's inerrant, it's infallible, it's unbelievable, it's believable, it's the truth, it is, right? You get it all, all kinds of answers to that question, what is the Bible? When I was a youth pastor, I remember standing in front of junior hires, and I'm like, this is the Bible, this is your answer book, this is your guidebook, this is your playbook, whatever questions you have, whatever, you know, you can bring them to the Bible, and and they will be addressed. While well intended totally misinformed. There's lots of things the Bible does not care to talk about, and lots of questions that the Bible does not care to answer. So you get all kinds of answers to this question of what is the Bible. I want to offer two thoughts on this this morning, which I think are important as we begin this series. First, uh, this is a, a collection, a library of poems and of accounts and of letters, of speeches, of opinions, of rants, of wisdom literature, and all number of other things. It was passed on orally before people wrote things down. Then it was written down. Then it was redacted and edited and compiled. And now it's here in our hands 2,600 some years later. Uh, it is an ancient book with thousands of miles and years between us and it. Uh, cultures, the difference in culture is just astronomical from the people who wrote this book and who lived in it and us today. And it's important for us to remember that and say it out loud. People say, well, just read the Bible. The the Bible says that I believe that that's enough. That is dangerous, and I do not encourage that type of thinking at all. This book is really, really old. And so when we find things that are barbaric or hard to hear or uh, seemingly like offensive and primitive, it's because they are barbaric and offensive and primitive. If you read this passage and you didn't have some pause, I would have questions about you. Like, I might encourage you to seek professional help if this doesn't bother you at all. The assumptions one needs to make about women for, to write this passage? Can I get an amen on that one, right? 
The implications that are made about God, if that's what God is like, are scary at best. So when we read something that's barbaric or primitive or bizarre, it's because it is. You don't need to try to work around it or pretend it's not barbaric and it doesn't make God out to sound like a bloodthirsty animal. Sometimes it does. That's because it was written 2,000 some years ago by people for whom this kind of language was totally normal. To, to refer to a capital city of an empire as a woman in this kind of way, totally normal. People did it all the time. So for those who read this first, they would have been like, yeah, next question. Change the channel, right? But for us, it's like, what in the world? Sometimes we read things and we find it barbaric, offensive, primitive. It's because it is. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised when we find ways of thinking that are ancient and primitive in it because this is an ancient and primitive book. When we find metaphors and images that are bizarre to us, it's likely that they accurate, accurately reflect the context and culture from which they came. So, what is this book? Just because, uh, well, this book was written by people. I didn't know if you know that or not. Uh, like actual people who lived in a particular place, time, and context. So it didn't actually fall from the sky. It didn't come down on a cloud from heaven. It was not um, the divine co-opting human hands and consciousness and will and writing whatever the divine wanted. That's not actually how it happened. Um, so first I would say it's a product of its culture and its time and the people who wrote it. And so when we find things that are a product or sound like and reflect the culture that it was written, we shouldn't be surprised by that, okay? Now, on the other hand, I would also affirm that this is some mysterious and beautiful and supernatural way, this is a divinely inspired book. That it is the orchestration of humans as well as the Spirit of God, which, by the way, if you read Genesis 1, is hovering over the water in creation, brooding, guiding, directing, doing. And I would submit that as people are writing, and this is being compiled and given to us now, is a process by which we can trust that the Spirit of God was active and involved in. And so what we have in our hands is both the product of human experience and culture, though primitive and barbaric as it might seem, and also this divine inspired book which comes to us and continues thousands of years later to represent and reveal the divine to humans who are seeking. Isn't that crazy to think about? How did this thing last for so long, of all the books in all of the world, this is the one that somehow seems to make it through anything that tests it, including time. So I affirm wholeheartedly that this is the word of God, inspired, directed, given, breathed, as Dan preached about last week, to us that continues to reveal who God is to us. But you can't have one without the other, and it's dangerous to hold one without the other, Right? Because on the one hand, we get a book that's been used for some really, really bizarre and horrible behavior in the name of God, and a book that's like, take it or leave it, meh, right? I want to start this series by saying it's both and. Now, the trick is, sometimes when we read this, it's going to reflect the culture from which it came, more than the nature of God. And other times when we read it, it's going to reflect the nature of God. The question is, when is it doing what? 
And can you, can we develop a system, a robust, intellectually sound, theologically uh, grounded way by which we determine when is it doing what? That is the question at hand, correct? I hope so. I hope if you come to Awaken and you sit here for years and years and years and you leave someday, what you leave with is the ability to read the text well, to have some semblance of an idea as to when are we talking about culture and when is this a reflection of the people who wrote it and when are we hearing and seeing the heart of God on display because it happen, both happen, but determining which is which, that is welcome to theology, friends, and you all are theologians. So what is the Bible? Secondly, what are we reading? When you approach a text and you open the Bible and you begin to read, it's not random. And you can't just apply the same rules in one passage as you can in another. For example, if you're reading Shakespeare and you apply it or read it as if you were reading a law document, you'll be way off, right? You won't get the nuance and the, the, the turns of phrase and these kinds of things that are common to Shakespearean literature. Arguably, when you read scripture... It's not all the same. You have narrative and you have epistles and letters and prophets and uh, apocalypse and wisdom literature and all kinds of things. And so there are rules by which you read those texts and they're different from one another. So what are we reading? Ezekiel is a prophet. So this is one of the prophetic books. And to know a little bit about prophets, you need to know Ezekiel is writing like 590s to 570s before Jesus shows up. I want to argue he's writing from exile in Babylon, and he's in exile of the southern kingdom of Judah. We'll get to this a little bit more. But what do prophets do? If we're reading a prophetic book, then what do prophets do, and what can we expect from them? First, I would say this. They're provokers. Did any of you have siblings? Yeah, you know that one who's just like, nee, 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 like he's like a, or she, you just can't quite nail him down when you try to smack him and deal with him? The prophets are provocateurs. They are the ones who like say things for effect. They inflame things in order to get you to think about something. If you're at two and they want you at five, they will say eight. Got it? So when you read something from the prophets and it's like, whoa, that is illicit sexual imagery. It's like, yeah, exactly. That's what they do. They provoke you so that you respond. I don't know if you know this or not, but language is a very fascinating thing. There are layers or levels of communication. Follow me. Illocution, this is called speech act, speech act theory. Illocution is what has been said. The utterance, I am a dog. Like just word for word, like what do the words mean? Illocution, first level. It's a literal reading of whatever was spoken or, or written. Illocution is the next level, and it's what was meant Right? So you can say something, and it will, just by the words you've said, mean one thing, but based on context and how you've said it, it might mean something else. That's illocution. Third layer is perlocution, and that's what's intended to happen because of the utterance. You following? So, friends, if we read the Bible as literalists, people will say, I'm a literalist, and I would say, I am, that is not a good idea, because that's reading the Bible at a locutionary level, which is what second graders do, and often then miss the second and third layers of what was meant and what was intended. That is a very dangerous proposition because you can read the Bible and come up with all kinds of crazy ideas about who God is and what God is like. Amen? So I do not encourage you to be a literalist in that sense, to just read it, the Bible says it, I believe it, that's enough. Bad idea. That's, locutionary, that's locution, and it's like very, very... Uh, 
adolescent thinking, so we can do better than that. The prophets are provokers. They poke, they prod, they say something which may sound, which may be like your, your breasts were fun. Your, your, uh, the sermon title this morning is Two Prostitutes, Virgin Breasts, and Genitals of Donkeys. That's my sermon title. <laughs> right? they, they can say something and it's like, what in the... Just locutionary level, like that's alarming, but then you start to unpack and it's like, oh, that's where we're going. So they provoke. They say something in order to get a response. They're also truth tellers, the prophets. They're the ones who stand up and say it like it is. They're the original hip-hop artists. They're the original slam poets. They're the original artists. Unfortunately, the church destroyed a lot of art and kicked the artists out, and I would argue we need them back because they're the truth tellers. They're the ones who stand up in front of power and systems and oppression, and they hold up a mirror. And they say, this is how it is. This gap between the rich and the poor, it's not how God wants it to be. The fact that the poor are being oppressed on the backs of the rich and which privilege those at the top, that's not how God intended it to be. That's not a new idea. Actually, the prophets of the Israelites 2,600 years ago were saying these kinds of things. There's a great story of Nathan, the prophet. He comes to the king. By the way, the king is the person at the top. His name was David. And he tells this story. He says, there's this, there's this guy. He has a lot of resources. He's got all these lambs, thousands of them. They're everywhere. And then there's one poor man who has one little lamb that he loves dearly. He cares for. He feeds. He nurtures. And this poor man makes his way into the village, and he finds the rich man. And the rich man takes him in. And instead of taking one of his lambs to provide for the poor man, he makes the poor man take his own lamb and sacrifice it for, to feed the rest. And David's like, you know that moment where like throws the table and just absolute detest, and he's like, this is uncalled for. He says, this man should die and pay back fourfold what he did. And Nathan says, that man is you. Mic drop, boom. Oh my gosh. I imagine like that's, that was that moment, you know, where the prophet's like, what? Next question. The prophets are truth tellers. They stand in front of power and they just say, this is what it is. They're provokers, they're truth tellers, but they're also the memory. They're the ones who help them remember. They say, Israel, you were once slaves in Egypt and I, the Lord, brought you out of Egypt and brought you into a land flowing with milk and honey and put you as a city on a hill, a light that cannot be hidden so that all the world could see what it looks like to be in relationship with the God of the universe, the one true and living God, Yahweh, do you remember? Come back. They always invited Israel back. They said, come back, repent, teshuva, turn. Don't go that way, go this way. So the prophets, when you read them, this is what's happening. This is what they're doing. They're provoking. They're telling the truth. They're inviting Israel to come back. Now, what in the world does Ezekiel 23 mean? <laughs> You thought I was going to go through this whole sermon and never get to it. Now, buckle up, friends. What we have is a product of humans, right? And the divine, and a prophet who's a truth teller, provoker, storyteller, uh, memory maker, inviter back. So, what's the context? What does it mean? In order to understand Ezekiel 23, you have to know a little bit of history about Israel in like two seconds or ten. Here it is. 
Israel were slaves in Egypt, right? This is the story of the prince of Egypt, if you've seen this. Moses comes in, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. Ufta, yasser, yabetcha. The slaves leave Egypt. They leave. They find themselves wandering in the desert, but eventually they make their way to the promised land, where they are a people that God tabernacles among, lives with. And God is their king, and they are the people, based on 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob's sons. They look over to the Millers, and they're like, the Millers have a king, and the Andersons have a king, and the Johnsons have a king. We need a king. And God's like, you don't need a king. I'm your king. And they say, no, look around us. They all have kings. We need a king. So as God does, because God is relational, not a dictator, God gives them what they want, and they get a king. First Solomon, or Saul, then David, then Solomon. At which point, you have a divided kingdom. So there are 10 tribes in the north. There are two tribes in the south, Israel and Judah. Enter Ezekiel 23. Ezekiel is a prophet of the southern kingdom, and each two of these camps, these kingdoms, have been taken captive and are now in exile in Assyria and in Babylon. So what is Ezekiel 23? The northern kingdom of Israel is taken captive by the Assyrians prior to the southern kingdom being taken captive. And so the whole passage is set up. The first part of it is about Oholah, the sister, right? The northern kingdom. You have Oholah and Oholiba. Oholah is the northern kingdom. Samaria is the capital. Oholiba is the southern kingdom. Jerusalem is the capital. The northern kingdom gets taken captive by Assyria. They make alliances, allegiances, political, economic, marital, social. They basically sell themselves, prostitute themselves. They are unfaithful to this covenant with Yahweh to be in relationship with as God is their king. And they long for, lust after, the power and the authority and the military and the technology and all the things that Assyria has to offer. And basically the prophet says, you got what you paid for. You reaped what you sow. I'm getting what I deserve. I'm reaping what I sow. I think that's from Liar Liar, when he gets the parking tickets. <clears throat> so they get, they get taken away. They get carted away. And the prophet's like, you, southern kingdom, you saw the whole thing happen. You watched it happen. And not only that, did you do the same thing that the, the northern kingdom did? You longed after, you lusted after, like you prostituted yourself, alliances, political, uh, social, marital, economic, to Babylon and others. You actually went out onto the streets and like sold yourself. You, you marketed yourself. You went a step further in your lust and your desire. And basically, you got what you paid for. Ezekiel chapter 23. Two sisters from the same mother. Israel. Two kingdoms. Northern, southern, Samaria, Judah, Ohola, Oholiba. Are you tracking with me? I want to submit to you that the prophet Ezekiel is actually not telling the future. He's telling the past. When the prophets write, they're always asking three questions. How did the temple get destroyed? How are the people of God in exile? And is there any hope for us? We are the people of God, the city on a hill, a light that cannot be hidden for the world. How did we end up here? And the prophet says, do you really want to ask that question? Do you really want to know the truth of that matter? I will tell you what it is. And here it is. Two sisters, promiscuous, adulterous, prostitutes who sold themselves, made allegiances and alliances with political and social and military powers around them because they were unfaithful and did not trust the one true God whose name was Yahweh, who has always been faithful. That's how you ended up here. That's why you're in this situation. It's not a future-telling prophet. It's actually, how do we make sense of where we are? It's a look in the rearview mirror. And it says, the writer says, they learned these, these, these attitudes and behaviors in Egypt, right? 
Do you guys remember all the horrible things you learned on the bus going to school in like sixth grade that you should have forgotten? Maybe it's just me, but I have like all these things that I learned in sixth grade driving, going to public school that I just wish I could forget. The writer says, you remembered everything you should have forgotten and you have forgotten everything you should have remembered. That I, the Lord, brought you out of Egypt. I spared you. You were slaves and I redeemed you and I brought you and gave you a land and set you up on a city on a hill, a light that cannot be hidden to show the world what it looks like to be in relationship with God, to be a blessing for shalom and peace to everyone. You forgot. That's how you've gotten here. And so why does Ezekiel 23 use such jarring and illicit and explicit? I mean, this would be like parental advisory, right? The original parental advisory explicit lyrics. Why does he do that? Have you ever spoken to like a teenager who, who seems like they are on planet who knows what? Like far, far away and you're like, wake up! You are so far away from us that you, you can't even hear me. Do you know that moment with somebody? Or maybe it's your spouse on a daily basis, I don't know. Or your roommates, Right? And so you say something to sort of wake them up, to get their attention, to say, here's how we got here. Inflammatory, provoking language about two adulterous sisters. Now, a couple of thoughts as we close this thing down. How do we know that God's true character and heart is not on display in this passage? Right? Because that's the question. When we read passages like this and people go, well, that's what God's like. The Bible says it. I believe it. That's enough. And you're like, do you have any idea the implications about the nature of God if that's God's heart on display? How do we know that this is not what God is like? Some bloodthirsty, like revengeful, jealous, petty, orchestrating God who's up there pulling strings so that everybody who, who, who does anything against God gets their due because God needs somebody to pay in order to be happy. How do we know that that's not what God is like? How do we know that that's not the nature of the universe? Because some people say that it is, actually, and, and in the name of religion and God, and the Bible. And they want to be faithful to Scripture. I get it, but locution. <laughs> Let's go a couple clicks deeper. I don't believe that this is the nature of God's heart on display. I would actually argue that this is a product of culture and time and a prophet who is writing in a very in in an appropriate way to the people he was writing to. Inflammatory, over the top. It's like a shock jockey. You know those, you know, like Howard Stern? There we go. Ezekiel, the original Howard Stern. (laughs) Why do I believe that? Even in this passage, there's language about God handing them over to their own sin, right? God is always, from the beginning of the the entrance of God into the story in Genesis 12 with with Abraham, God is relational, in covenant relationship with people. And so the people always have a choice. And in this case, we see God hands them over. God relents. God says, okay, if you want to go your own way, that's where they got that song, by the way, (laughs) you can go your own way, and I can't stop you. Because I love you, and love has to have a choice. Even in this passage, we find the notion of God handing them over, letting them go the way they want to go. Not far, not far from this, 14 chapters later, we get a passage, Ezekiel 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones, which is in direct opposition to what we just read, where we hear about this vision of a future where there's a valley with dry bones and everybody's dead and there's no, no sinews and no muscle and no breath. But God, I, God, will breathe life into these bones and they will rise up and become a group, a people, like 
uh, inspired and, and with and the, the breath of God invested in, in them, totally opposite from Ezekiel 23. I think here we see the, the desire of God, and this is consistent with the other prophets who were always saying, come back. If you come back, I will take you back. This is rather a product of culture, time, and inflammatory language to make a point. I would also say I believe that that's true because it doesn't sound like, look like at all, Jesus. God, Jesus himself says, if you want to know what God is like, hello. Like, you don't need to go any further than me. And this passage doesn't sound anything like the heart of Jesus. I think you can start there and be on really good ground. When you find a passage in Scripture that doesn't sound like, look like, smell like, taste like Jesus, you can say, something's going on here. Dig a little. Go to the next level. Perlocution or or illocution, and then keep digging. Last, I will say this. Here's how I think it applies. If the prophet were here this morning, what would the word be to us? Uh Uh-oh. Israel. God's people were being indicted, or, or at least a testimony was being given, of unfaithfulness in the form of idolatry and false gods. Israel stopped trusting Yahweh. They stopped ascribing ultimate worth, and they stopped pledging their allegiance to the one true God and the kingdom that God oversees. And they made military and political and and personal and marital and economic alliances and allegiances. And they started doing it at their own hand because they didn't trust that God would be faithful. Because they weren't sure about their future. So political ideologies got in the way of their relationship with God. Preaching. New advancements and technologies got in the way. They became idols that they ascribed worth to over and above their relationship with God. Materialism got in the way of their relationship with God. Safety and security got in the way of their relationship with God. Is there anything that a prophet 2,600 years ago said that might need to be repeated this morning for the Church of America in 2017? Is there anything vying for our attention and luring us away from trusting the one true God? Is there any way in which we are shoring up our bets on our own accord because we're not sure about the future and whether or not we're safe and whether or not God will in fact bring the world to right in and through the resurrected Jesus Christ? Is there any way in which we have taken matters into our own hands and made political allegiances and alliances and entrusted in the hands of men our futures? Just saying. Is there an invitation for us to repent, to turn as the people of God, to fully trust, to turn back to Yahweh, the one who has always been faithful? Pray with me, if you will. God, this morning, we, uh, we find ourselves in the deep end of the pool. And as your people, your church, gathered in this place, it's my hope and prayer that we would increasingly look like, sound like, feel like, 
the one that we claim to follow, this Jesus, this resurrected Messiah, who took position and power and authority and divested himself of it for the sake of those who didn't have it. So God, in our midst right now, may you come to us with words of encouragement, of exhortation, of challenge, that we may not be like these two sisters, making allegiances and alliances with anything other than your love, your grace, your hope, your mercy, your forgiveness, your character, and who you are. So in this moment of silence, God, meet us where we are, I pray. Jesus tells a story about a prodigal who returns home and the father says to the son, everything I have has always been yours. I was just sitting here thinking about like just going back over my life and moments where, um, where I found God to be faithful. Um, for whatever reason, I, I thought of my mom and how she's just been so faithful to me as a mom, um, which was really helpful to see it in that light and to hear that song and think about all these moments along the way. Um, I would just re- remind you this morning, the question is not about the faithfulness of this God. It's you and it's me. It's wanderers. It's people who make a mess of things, advertently and inadvertently. And I just implore you, exhort you, return, turn around. Grace is already yours. Take it, live in it, be the church. A group of people in the world who live for, stand for, work for hope and justice and love and mercy and forgiveness in a kingdom that doesn't look like the kingdoms of this world. It isn't driven by the same motives but it's driven by sacrificial love for the other, where we take whatever, whatever advantage we might have and s- sacrificially, voluntarily, we lay it down for the sake of another. Whatever form that takes in your life, that's the kingdom. That's heaven coming to earth. That's Jesus' prayer. So that's the small task that you've been invited to today. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Go and be the church, my friends. See you next week. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.